Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you have a bulletin in your, in your possession, I encourage you to open it up, take out the notes that's found therein. It's going to aid us this morning as we look at. Um, salvation. These next three weeks as we are preparing uh, today, uh, as we enter into Holy Week, the week that we celebrate uh, uh, Easter, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and Resurrection Sunday next week, uh, as we begin to think in light of the biblical times, that what, the week that we're celebrating Easter, and it changes for us, uh, of course, Easter is not always on the same um, weekend uh, or it's not always on the same date, but as far as what we're celebrating uh, the time where Jesus' triumphal entry and, uh, oh, the difference a few days will make as where he was riding on the donkey and they were crying out Hosanna uh, to where just a few days later he will be uh, mocked and ridiculed and sentenced to death and will eventually uh, take upon him, himself the punishment of all mankind. Uh, and what a difference a, day wake, uh, uh, a week makes. How fickle are we as people from from uh, praise to condemnation, uh, and for that, we, it's a good reminder for us as we look at this that uh, we have a hope this morning, and it's the hope that's found because of what Jesus did on Resurrection Sunday, because of what Jesus did on the cross, and the reasons why we celebrate Easter. Uh, and so I would encourage you, as we do at Christmas, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, commercialism, um, but nonetheless, there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity for us to celebrate it and, and uh, to make sure that we're celebrating it wisely in our homes. And so there's a variety of good resources out there this week that you can be reading alongside of. Um, uh, and if you have questions about those, be, feel free to contact our church office. We'll be happy to direct you to um, a variety of different means. But I would encourage you to utilize this week and prepare the hearts of your hearts and minds and um, for this coming week, Easter and uh, Easter Sunday, and as an opportunity for that to just be salt and light throughout the week. And uh, I know there's going to be uh, you may have already started receiving all kinds of mailers in, in your mail uh, trying to get you to go to a variety of, of services um, and uh, encouraging us as uh, this is like Super Bowl Sunday for pastors and that it, most everybody's going to show up for Easter. And there's a reason for that, right? We, we prepare for Easter. Uh, people buy their dresses and their hats and their suits. And so that's one of the rare Sundays that even if it's absolutely raining and it's atrocious weather, people are monetarily invested. And so they're going to church on Easter Sunday. And so uh, with that, uh, good opportunity for us just to remind people why Good Friday is so good uh, and why we worship on Sunday, why it's the first day of the week and why uh, this is the time that we gather on Sunday mornings is because of what Jesus did on Resurrection Sunday. And so I encourage you to don't get fall, fall into the trap of of all the negative type things as it relates to, to um, the holidays and, and the holidays being um, the secular way of trying to take Christ out of our culture. Um, that's what our pagan culture is. Uh, it doesn't worship God, and that's what our pagan culture does because that's what it is. And so uh, rather than being a critique of it, we should have all the more joy in the midst of our culture. And so uh, parents, I would encourage you, Utilize this week. Think 
deep and hard today of how you can make this week a special week uh, for your children to do demonstrate to them why we would celebrate and why there needs to be on every day and every Sunday, and especially Resurrection Sunday, why there be so much joy for us. Uh, we have joy because we have hope, and we have hope and joy because we have confidence. And that's what we're going to be over the next few weeks. Today, salvation, our hope. Next week, on Easter Sunday, salvation, our joy. And then finally, salvation, our confidence, April 3rd. And so I would encourage you to be able to, to do that. But as we look at it this morning, Many times, even last week, I know the message was heavy. I I'd, uh, spent I one of the last ones to leave the church on Sunday morning as we talked about the, the sovereign uh, rule and reign of God, the doctrine of election last week. And, and there was a variety of doctrines that were listed there, the doctrine of God's foreknowledge, the uh, doctrine of sanctification, salvation. Uh, There's a lot of heavy, heavy uh, material last week. Uh, and just a couple of verses of Scripture, and I know it, it can be challenging to you, but the question then would be big, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking that again. We'd be happy to continue to walk through questions and conversations you have. And we're going to, as we walk through First Peter, you're going to continue to see these themes brought up. And I wanted to uh, try to do a good job of uh, uh, explaining that. Tim, Pastor Tim and I desire to do that. But um, here's the question I want us to begin to look at. So what? Like what? Why do we need to have hope in salvation? Why would we need to know about joy of salvation? Why would we need to have confidence in our salvation? Why would we need to know there needs to be a gracious greeting? And, and, and the reason is why we need to understand the doctrines or the teachings or the theology of Scripture is that we need to have a proper understanding of who God is. Because if you don't know who God is, you will look at yourself in a manner that will not be accurate. We all live in a context. We all live in, in a, with a point of reference. And if we don't have a proper understanding and, and what the the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, from under the sun, right? That's how he, he would continue to use that theme, under the sun. What he was beginning to speak about is the, our viewpoint looking to God. And we're beginning to look now, how do we begin to have God's viewpoint of looking to us? And so the, the man that, who would cry, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, is because we tried to look to God and try to think things about God that we would not know about God if he didn't reveal himself to us. But the beautiful thing is we don't have to just come up with ideas about who God is. God has revealed himself to us. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says that the secret things belong to God, but things have been revealed to us. He's given to us and to our children so that we could understand him and know him. And so he's given us a means for us to know him. And so as a result of that, it's really important. Let me give you an example and explain a little bit about why it's important to think through these heavy, weighty topics. Because you can begin to wonder about God and begin to believe things about God that aren't true if we're looking from our viewpoint under the sun, right? From on this planet that's been created, it's massive and large, and we feel pretty insignificant at times. But if we begin to look at ourselves in a wrong manner, we really begin to believe that everything that's happening on the planet is actually revolving and evolving around us. Right? That's why we get mad in traffic when traffic doesn't go the way we think it should go or somebody cuts us off because we're clearly the sovereign ruler of our lives and we're the one that's most important. And how could anyone dare to cut me off on the road? How would anybody think we so un unkind and, un and lack of thoughtfulness to be able to think that I'm the most important person? Why would they not already just know that, assume that, and believe that? Well, it's because they're thinking the same thing. 
I need to cut this person off because clearly my, my schedule is more important. It's busier than this other person's schedule. And I need to be somewhere. And I'm already running late because somebody cut me off just a few moments ago myself. And so we begin to look at things from our viewpoint, our understanding. And then when things don't go the way they, we go, then we'll begin to uh, communicate to God in a manner that describes how we think about God at that time. Let me explain again. When difficulties happen, it doesn't require very much energy and effort for us to look around and, and see that the world is, is full in, uh, of sin and is marred by sin. We can look around and begin to see. Uh, just last night, one of the last images that I saw before going to bed is wow, we kind of just checked Twitter and we use Twitter uh, in our house. My wife and I simply kind of keep in touch with the news. And so you just kind of see these news feeds. And one of the last images last night before I went to bed was a, a suicide bomber in Istanbul, Istanbul, Turkey, blowing himself up in an attempt to harm others. And it doesn't require very much effort and energy to realize this world is broken. This world is marred by sin. That sin's not outside of me, that I'm okay and everyone else isn't. That sin's inside of me. I'm capable of heinous acts if it were not for the grace and goodness of God, His restraining power. And so here's, we begin to think that we're the center of our universe and we're the ones in control and it should be all revolve around us. And here's what, here's what we begin to think about God when things don't go the way we think they should go. And we begin to look at this world marred with sin. We begin to say one of two things. It could be more than two, but let me give you at least two. One, we begin to say, well, evidently then, God is not all-powerful and all-knowing. Because if God's all-powerful and all-knowing, then he could have prevented this bad thing from happening. He could have prevented the suicide bomber. He could have prevented this uh, tragedy that had taken place in the context of your life. He could have prevented uh, a a sickness or an illness. He could have prevented cancer that had taken the life of your child or taken the life of your spouse, taken the life of a parent or a sibling. And so evidently God isn't all-powerful. Or potentially worse yet, we believe, believe that God's sovereign and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. He's all-powerful all and he's all-knowing. The other side of the coin could be that we, we don't believe that God is good. He's clearly all-powerful. He's created everything, but he's just not really loving. And so he allows things to go pl- take place in our lives because he's not good. I believe that's where it would be with Ruth or Naomi in the book of Ruth. Famine had hit Bethlehem. The House of Bread, as it's translated. They go to a pagan nation trying to find work, to try to find food. And that sons marry pagan women. As a result of that, or subsequent to that, following that, shortly thereafter, her husband dies. Both of her sons die. And she's left a widow with two additional daughters-in-law who have also been widowed. She decides to head back home, maybe try to find family, try to take care of her and minister to her. One of the daughter-in-laws remains there in the pagan nation, and then one named Ruth comes, accompanies her back home, the city and the family of God. Returning home, everyone says, oh, is that not, not Naomi? They greet her and they welcome her. Naomi, she says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because I am bitter. 
And why was she bitter? She was bitter at God. Why was she bitter at God? She did not question what many of you might question last week, the sovereignty of God, electing those whom he chooses. She understood the sovereignty of God. What she was lacking was other characteristics of the nature of God. She understood his sovereign rule and reign over things. And she said, God is the one who's afflicted me, who has taken from me, has brought me back with nothing. Ruth had to feel really important right about that time, right? Well, I wouldn't say I'm nothing. Uh, something. I may not be what you want, but I'm something. Right? I was a companion. I was company with you. God brought me back with nothing. The reality was, Naomi was looking, or Mara, as she wanted her name to be changed, was looking from a perspective of under the sun. She didn't have God's perspective of His mercy and His grace and His loving kindness and His goodness. Oh, she understood the doctrine of God's sovereign rule. She understood very clearly sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. But she lacked an understanding of the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God, the love of God. And so we can begin to question like Mara, God's goodness. And so immediately, without any pretense, without any caveats, without any means of trying to say, well, now listen, you guys might struggle with election. I want you guys to struggle with this doctrine. He, Paul, Peter immediately dives into the text to begin to teach them about the doctrine of God's sovereign rule and reign, even over salvation. And it's to comfort them. It's to encourage them with it. And so for us now to be able to realize then, what is this salvation that we have and why should we have hope? Well, we, God wants us to have hope because as we look around this world, there will be trouble. And Jesus has promised us that there will be trouble. And so I wanted to set it up for us to, as we begin to walk through First Peter in this passage today to see hope. To see what genuine hope is. Because Hope is different, is different in its description in the Scripture. Hope is different in how the Bible defines what hope is according to Scripture, the way that we would define hope. We would define hope in a variety of means. It's wishful thinking for something. It could be joys or uh, dreams and aspirations of other things. Man, as a, I remember as a young child, I, I had hopes and dreams of making it to the NBA, the National Basketball Association, where the professional basketball players play. And that hope never materialized. That dream was dashed. I'd hoped this morning that I would not be plagued with poison ivy all over my body. That I had acquired last week while working in the garden. And that I'd hoped that that would not be still plaguing me this morning. Guess what? I woke up this morning with those hopes being dashed and those dreams not realized. And there are hopes and dreams that you have that will never happen regardless of how much you were think or being taught that the American dream is yours and it can be achieved if only you believe, if only you speak the right words, if only if you have the right faith. It is not going to happen. I'm not going to play in the NBA. I'm not going to be freed from poison ivy, at least not today. Because today has already happened and it's I'm walking and living in it, and it's still plaguing me. Right? 
And so what is this hope of the Bible? It's absolutely something different. It is a certainty of what is to come. A certainty of what is to come. Why do we need such certainty? Let's ask the question in our notes here. It says, how does one have hope in times of difficulty and uncertainty? That's what we're trying to answer today. Salvation, our hope, is to be able to try to answer the question, how then does these people who are going to be enduring suffering that Peter's writing to encourage them as they are strangers in a strange land, meaning not that they didn't know where they were or how they were living, it was meaning that as they've now received Christ and embraced salvation and their lives have been radically trained and their worldview is so different from what they see around them that this world is persecuting them and they are suffering as a result of this persecution. Man, how do you have hope in those times? When the rug feels like it just gets pulled out from under you and you're laying on your backside and the wind has been knocked out of you, you're struggling for breath to be able to breathe because you've been kicked in the soul. How do you have hope in times of difficulty and uncertainty? And this is exactly the question that Peter will be answering all throughout this text. I want you to see that we're absolutely talking about suffering. This is how we just kind of walk through First Peter. I'm just going to pull out a variety of passages here to understand. How, Pastor, how do you know they're talking about suffering? And Peter's immediately dove in to encourage these exiles in, in light of suffering. Well, let's look at chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It's where we're going to be next week in our study, verses 6 through 9. But just look at verse 6 and 7 as it relates to suffering. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may, may, uh, test genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to be result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be grieved by various trials and we're going to have joy in that so that the tested genuineness of our faith which is more precious than gold that, that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What else? Chapter 2, verse 19. Let's what it says here as it relates to suffering. 1 Peter 2, 19. We'll all be in 1 Peter in each of these passages. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ has given us an example that we're going to follow in his steps, that where he was persecuted and suffered, we too will be persecuted and will suffer. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, as it relates to suffering and the hope that we can have in the midst of suffering. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing good evil. Is he suffering yet again? Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. You hear what he says? Why are you shocked when you suffer? Why is that so surprising to us? Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Why is it? Why did God allow it? Why did God ordain it? What does the Bible say? Don't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to do what? Talk to me. What does the text say? Test you. It's to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange that you go through a fiery trial. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and the God rests upon you. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely say, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And women, we're going to we're going to suffer. And then lastly, chapter five or six through eleven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, uh, conform, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are going to suffer. And if you've not encountered times of difficulty and times of uncertainty, do not worry. It is coming. And so God doesn't want us to be shocked and to begin to question him and his character. God has revealed to us his character. He's attempting to prepare us in our suffering. And so today he wants us to have hope. That's not like my aspirations of being allergy free of poison ivy, right? Or the hopes and dreams of dreams dashed. that I'm not going to make millions and be famous as a result of not being an NBA basketball player. My identity is not wrapped up in the things that I aspire for. My identity is in Christ. And so how do we have this certainty? How do we have this confidence, this hope in times of difficulty and uncertainty? Let's walk through the text together. The text says the believer, or our notes say in a lot of the text, the believer is resting in the living hope. The believer is resting in the living hope. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has called us to be born again to a living hope. A hope that's alive, that never dies. See, the hopes and dreams I've already communicated to you have died. They don't live. The dream of being an NBA player has died. Even if I think, man, I can might make it close to being 40 now, but maybe one day if I just keep practicing, maybe they'll... They'll, they'll have a 40-year-old. Can I tell you, there's, there's guys that like 
LeBron James, one of, known as one of the greatest guys, is younger than I am. He's been in the league for over 13 years. And can I tell you what they're saying about him now? He's old. He's losing his abilities. I'm older than him and clearly not as talented as he is, not as athletic as he is, not as handsome as he is, right? And so as a result of that, I have to be honest, that dream has died. There's a variety of other dreams and hopes that you and I have had, if we're honest, that have to continue to change, have to morph. When one dream dies, another one, I have another dream. Why? Because all of those dreams are dying. And even if some of those dreams were to materialize, they will eventually die when I die. But not this hope. It's a living hope, not a dying hope. It will live on forever. And so the believer has hope because it's, the believer is resting in this certain hope. Not uncertain hope or this it's not wishful thinking or wishful dreams or hopes and dreams and aspirations we have that aren't in our control. This one is absolutely controlled. So we begin to think why Paul, where Peter is going with this logic. He says, you've been elected. You've been chosen by God. He's the one who did the choosing. He's the one who's doing the saving. And as a result of that, we can have hope because why? It's not based upon us who are not sovereign. Who can't control the aspects of humanity. But we can have hope in God who can. And so the believer is resting in this living hope. Not working, resting in this living hope. What does it look like? How, and here's the question you might be able to ask. If God's the one doing the choosing, God's the one who's doing the electing, God's the one who's doing the saving, then how do I know if I'm resting in this? What does that look like? How, do I, can, I ha- how can I have this hope? I want to have that hope. How can I have it? Man, I'm so glad you asked that question. So grateful. Here's what the Bible tells us. One major theme that has a variety of bullet points here. So we're going to have one major thought to answer that question. How then does the believer have the certainty and the hope that we're looking at here? How does the believer know that I have salvation and hope? One major thought that's unpacked with six subpoints. right? So here it is. How do, how do I know that's happening? Because the believer will be praising God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The believer, the one who's resting in this living hope, will be continually praising God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a title, not simply a description. You see how it opens up there? With an exclamation mark. Here's what it would sound like. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all the little spit molecules that flew out of my mouth at the same time. You see it? Exclamation mark. Exclamation point. He's exclaiming. He's praising God. It's a doxology. We're praising God. We went immediately out of a benediction, a prayer, a a blessing made Grace and peace be multiplied to you to many eruption of doxology. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to know if you're currently resting and trusting in the grace of God? You will praise God the Father. I can rejoice in my poison ivy because here's why. I look at it and go, oh, I'm so grateful for a day when my body will not be marred by the effects of sin. I don't have to let it drag me down. I can be grateful that God was gracious, that that didn't, poison ivy didn't get in my eyes or in my lungs or a variety of other locations that would have made it even more difficult to walk about and to live and to, to enjoy life. Right? I can rejoice that I have health and I have life and I have breath because why? Our good and gracious God 
has given us those blessings. And so the blessings that come from this benediction erupts into praise to this doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're, how do, how do you know if you've been saved and you have hope? You're praising God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Was Mara praising God? No. And she wasn't resting in that God either. She did, though, praise God the Father at the end of Ruth. The blessings that was bestowed upon her as God revealed his character and his nature to us. Well, what does that look like then? And, or better yet, how, why should we be praising God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Glad you asked. God is to be praised for the following six things. We're going to have hope. We trusting in this hope. Our confidence is in this hope. God is to be praised for doing a variety of things. Number one, God is to be praised for sending His Son to make payment for sin. This comes in the title of the, of the doxology itself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. Why is He our Lord? Well, we confess Him as Lord when we're saved. And so we're praising God for sending Christ to be our Lord and Savior. Sending His Son to make payment for sins. This week when Jesus, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem, Jesus stops the outskirts of Jerusalem and weeps for a people and a nation and a city that was going to reject Him and scorn Him. He desired to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks to bring them together and comfort them and he will do that and that will happen but not yet why because he must first go and suffer and the question is why would God suffer why did God must why must God suffer God must suffer to make payment for sin God is just he is holy And he will not turn a blind eye to the wickedness of sin. He must punish sin. And he's good and just to do so. We want, we understand justice, not as clearly as God does, but we want sin to be punished. And prevented. And so we, God, will judge sin. His holy name will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. God is not deceived. He is not mocked. And so what men sow in unrighteousness, they will reap in corruption. What they sow in righteousness as the encouragement from Peter to the suffering saints in a variety of locations. It's there in the opening verse. It's to communicate that when we sow in righteousness, God's also going to allow us to reap in eternal life. And so we should take comfort and encouragement in that. But God's not mocked. And he will punish sin. And so on the cross, God's holiness and His justice towards sin is being poured out in wrath because of sin. And at the same time, God's mercy and grace was on display by punishing His Son so that all who will believe in Him and turn from their sin and trust in Him and that finished work that He accomplished on the cross could be saved. Being be careful when we're talking to individuals and we're asking them about their salvation and we're sharing the gospel with them. 
Make sure they understand why Jesus must die on the cross. Why are they forgiven? They need to understand the forgiveness or they can't be saved. So why would you say it so boldly, Pastor? You have to understand everything there is to know about Jesus when he, in order to be saved. No, you don't have to understand everything. But you have to know. You have to. You absolutely have to understand certain things in order to be saved. It, Jesus wasn't just a model of benevolence or kindness. Jesus was doing something on the cross. What he was doing on the cross was making payment for sin and sinners. Of all those who were elect, all those who will be chosen, all those who will be called out. We don't know who they are, so we share the gospel openly with everyone. But God knows them. And that effectual call will happen. And so he's sending his son to make payment for sin. And so as a result of that, as we look at this synchronous world, we can realize I have peace with God. And I praise God for sending his son to make payment for sin. Number one. Number two, God is to be praised not only for sending His Son to make payment for sin, but for granting mercy to the undeserving. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? According to His great mercy. According to His great mercy. We praise God because He granted great mercy to the undeserving. You know who the undeserving are? Those all who receive mercy. That's who the undeserving are. That's you and I. If we repent, repented of our sin and placed our faith and trust in Jesus. Right? Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And believing that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. That's why I said earlier. You've got to believe certain things. It's not just Jesus was benevolent. He was kind. He was an example for our sin. That he died to make payment. Believing that God raised him from the dead. That was payment for sin. And it says if you repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. You will be saved. And so we got to think. Well why would God pour out such wrath. On sin and sinners. I wasn't that bad a person. Then if you believe that. You don't understand how great the good news is. And how great the mercy is. That's where many of us think. Many of us, the Bible says, many will proclaim their own goodness. This is how the Bible describes us, every single person on the planet. Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We were sons of disobedience, among whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, so who all once lived in the passions of their flesh? All have lived in the passions of their flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. God's wrathful because why? He hates sin. And we're sinners. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is why we need to share the gospel with people and give them a living hope. Tell them that there's hope for their present, but even more so for their future. Because why? They're sinners and they're separated from God. They are sons and daughters of disobedience. Following the power, the prince of the power of the air, they're following Satan, the father of all lies. 
It's from John chapter 8. Jesus speaks to those who are even Jewish, and it was completely offensive to them because they said that we're of our father Abraham. He goes, no, you're not. You're of your father. Let me tell you who your father is. The devil. It was just as offensive in that day as it is our day. How can you tell me my lifestyle is sinful? How can you tell me the things that I'm doing? Is, who, who are you? I don't kill the messenger. This is the message. I didn't come up with this. It's not my Bible. In the sense of I didn't write it. It's not, I'm not the author. It's what God says about us. And so we praise God that he granted mercy to us, the undeserving. That's why we want to go everywhere and share with everyone this gospel of repentance. That God is merciful and he's gracious and he's loving and he's kind. Yes, he hates sin. And yes, he hates sinners. In the sense of like God, sin's not out from us, outside of us, something that we just do. Sin's only manifested or tangible to see because why? We do it. And so he's not punishing outside of us. He has to punish us because why? Sin is manifested in our wicked hearts. Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks. It's in us. We're marred. We're born in sin. And yes, we choose to sin. And so we praise God that he would grant us mercy. Why would he do that? This is what the Bible says in Ephesians 2 as we continue reading. Verse 4. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace, you have been saved. Grace and mercy. Pictures that can at times be synonyms, but they do mean different things. Grace speaks to us. Being granted something we do not deserve. It relates to us being acquitted, being justified, declared righteous. So for, for that, it speaks to our guilt, our sin, our shame. But mercy, on their hand, speaks to the, mer- the misery that's accompanying that guilt and shame and that God grants us mercy in that he grants us grace and the acquittal and the guilt that's associated but then the mercy that comes as a result of the misery that comes from the guilt and the shame and God grants us great mercy and so we should praise God that we've been saved our eyes have been opened we shouldn't look at others with disdain the lack of compassion. Oh, should you hate the sin that they're, that they're sinning, that they're living in? Absolutely. No one's asking you to tolerate that or to embrace that. But inside of us shouldn't well up judgmental type of thinking toward them. Because why? God, that was us. That was you and me before we were saved. And it might be you now. You might be here and you're not, you've not been born again. And I would encourage you to look at God's holy standard and realize that you're not deserving to go to heaven. But yet God has made a means for you. If you will repent of sin, you will turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ to be your Lord, your commander, your chief, your master, your boss, your teacher, your everything. He now rules and reigns over you. You're not in control. He has... He's always been in control, but you thought you were up to this point. And now at this point, you need to confess him as your Lord. 
and then trust that the finished work, that there's going to be times where you're going to battle with sin and that that battle is not something that you have to continue to, to, to win yourself, that it's up to you to do so. That's why you confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. This was, it was a finished work that he accomplished on the cross for past, present, and future sins. Be encouraged, brother or sister. Be encouraged, unbeliever, that you can have a hope that's certain. Because why? There's nothing you bring to the table. God's the one who does the saving. He grants great mercy to the undeserving. How does he do that? We, sent, we've got, we praise God for sending his son to make payment for sin and then granting mercy to the undeserving. But number three, for causing us to be born again. That's what it says there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's the one doing the effect upon us. Hold your place there and turn with me to John chapter 3. I just want to show this to you and then encourage you. But I want to show this to you because it, when you see even Jesus, he's talking to Nicodemus about this being born in right out of the same context. He's caused us to be born again. John chapter 3, the gospel according to John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man, well, let me give you everybody there. When you're there, say glory. I'll give you another minute. Anybody, any other glories out there? All right. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus not address any of the comments that he's made whatsoever. He just says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is plaguing to Nicodemus. So Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb, his mother's womb, and be born? Now well, he began to pick up on this. He's like, uh, I don't think that can happen. Uh, so you might want to unpack that for me. How, how, can this, how can this be? Verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. First he said he cannot see it if he's not born again. And now he says he's not going to enter it. You're not going to enter it, nor will you see it unless you're born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So he's now speaking to Nicodemus' statement about being born naturally, right, the first time. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. It's now being born second time. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now listen to this. Talk about now God is the one who is causing this. Listen to how Jesus explains that doctrine to him. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus is coming to him and says, well, Master, great rabbi, look, we know you're, a, you're, you're from God because nobody can do the things that you do. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, let's just cut to the chase, right? You've been trusting in your own righteousness. That's why in Matthew 5, 48, it says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, upon which Nicodemus was a ruler, a Pharisee, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, let me just attack you where you're trusting in. You're trusting in your own righteousness. And so he says, let me just say, hey, bro, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless something happens to you, you can't see it. And he's like, whoa, man, how can this be? I can't 
Like, I'm, I'm a man. Mother's womb, not going to happen. Can't, can't happen a second time. And Jesus is like, you're totally missing it. You're not going to enter in the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. You must be born of water and the spirit. You must be born of the flesh. I'm going to help you. What you're, what you're talking about the human realm, the flesh. It's born of the flesh is the flesh. What's born of the spirit is the spirit. And then he begins to tell him, now, let me explain to you about the spirit. It blows where it wills. It's like the wind. And so, man, it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. We don't know how it happens to us. And we can look back and try to explain it, but we were dead. We didn't see it coming. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in church, minding my own business, Right? Being there because that's what good Southern Baptists do or what, you know, good Southerners do. I mean, we're just sitting in church because that's what you do on Sunday morning. And it's wah, 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 wah. Every Sunday, it's just, you know, I'm asleep on the road with my mom, right? I'm, I'm, I mapped out on the hard pews when I was a kid, and I'm just asleep, not paying attention. And all of a sudden, one Sunday or one day, I'm hearing the gospel, and it's the pastor keeps looking at me. And what I found out later, even becoming a pastor, I'm not really looking at you. You think I'm looking at you, and I am looking at you in a general sense, but I'm not preaching at you like I'm driving sermons toward you like I read your mail. That's the Spirit of God doing that. Many times you'll say, man, you're preaching at me. I'm not preaching at you. I am preaching at you, but not just you, right? I'm not targeting messages, writing messages. Oh, man, Dale Cornette, Hammer, oh, scratch his name. I don't say his name. Just preach at him here. Right? I don't write my sermons that way. I just unpack the text. And all of a sudden, my eyes are opened. My ears hear. And it's no longer Charlie Brown. It's Jesus saved you. Trust Christ. Oh, okay. This is new. Right? This, I'm paying attention to this. This is new. This isn't like wow, wow, wow before. This is, I'm getting this. And the Spirit's blowing. And I didn't. I'm not out there trying to create it. i got a big fan trying to get the Spirit to do it, right? Sailors only will sail boats if the wind catches the sail. The sails catch the wind. The wind has to blow or you don't go anywhere. And so it's important for us to see this. This is the work of God. So Nicodemus, verse 9, says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Meaning, it's got to be somewhere in the Old Testament. You should know this. And we know this because Ezekiel 36. The water and the Spirit put together, closely aligned to that. You begin to see the water and the Spirit is the work of God's grace through salvation. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, I, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things you, and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he doesn't leave him there, hopeless. He says, verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, speaking of himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We don't know who the chosen are. But we share the gospel with everybody just the way Nicodemus did, with, or Jesus did with Nicodemus. And he gives him hope of the gospel. There's allusion to Numbers 21. But there's a curse put upon the people because they rejected God. They sinned and blasphemed God's name by their actions. And God sent poisonous snakes, poisonous vipers to bite the people, and they were dying. And they cried out for mercy, and God says, erect a pole with a serpent wrapped around it. Ever seen on the side of an ambulance this pole with a serpent wrapped around it? 
Guess where that comes from? Numbers chapter 21. And they were to trust in the words of God. God said, if you go look at the serpent, you look, you live. That makes no sense, right? I've got poison ivy. I wasn't bit by a snake, but I got poison ivy. And I'm like, Kevin, if you go over there and look at that window, your poison ivy will go away. That's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Unless God says do it. And then it's called faith in the words of God because God doesn't lie. And so people said, hey, you've been cursed. Now you, what you need to do, you need to go look at what cursed you. Go look at the effects of the curse. And you look at the effects of the curse long and hard, I will save you by that. And Jesus is saying, you've been cursed by sin. Sin, the choices that you've made, and the effects of that causing death. And my son's going to be lifted up, and you're going to see the effects of the curse. Go look at the effects of the curse. Go look at it. And when you look at him, the Son of Man has been lifted up. All who believes in him, just as those who believe in Numbers 21, their eyes will be opened. Who's doing that? The Spirit opens our eyes, turns our heart, grants repentance. God causes us to be born again. That's exactly the language of Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's the water from the illusion in John 3. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. There's the Spirit from me, John chapter 3. And I'll put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone and, and uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the stone is dead. It doesn't respond to God, but the heart of flesh will respond to God as my flesh responds to the bones that are inside of it. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to what it says here. And cause you to walk in the statutes and, and be careful to obey my rules. God causes us to be born again. Now, why is that so important? Why do I want to rip the rug out from under you so that you can't boast in your own salvation? Why would I do that? Why do you want to attack This notion, Pastor, that we we don't have any rights to our own salvation. Because the Bible does. Go to Ephesians 2, the way we were before. Just listen, don't turn there. But Ephesians 2. Remember I told you about your character and your nature, who you were, but God being reached in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That dead in your trespasses, that same dead heart, that heart of stone that doesn't move. And by grace you have been saved and raised, uh, uh, and made, I'm sorry, and uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Who did the making? God did. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of his grace and kindness toward toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. So if it's something we've done, it's not grace. But just to make sure we understood that, Paul goes on, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We may not boast. I'm going to come back to that. So hold that thought. Why, why does God not want us to boast? But the biggest thing I want you to see here is that God's the one who's doing the causing. God's the one who's doing the acting that causes us to be born again. So that's why we need to praise God. For sending the Son to make payment for sin, for granting mercy to, be, to the undeserving, for causing us to be born again. Number four, for giving us the power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Giving us power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 3, back to our main text for this morning. Let's be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, 
What does it mean, this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Well, he was the firstborn of all who will be raised again, that there's a resurrection coming from us, that we will be made like Christ, our perfect bodies apart from sin. But God's given us power through Christ's resurrection that we can overcome sin today. Where do we see that? Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read a little bit, but it's going to be helpful for us to see this. Paul says this prayer in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, there it is, same worded, same um, description there in, of, of who God is, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's what Paul's praying, their eyes will be enlightened. That you may know what is this hope to which he has called you. Same Words, same terminology that Peter's alluding to here in our text. He's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, which we'll talk about in just a moment? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? So Peter says, uh, Paul says, I want you to understand the knowledge of who Christ is. Your eyes will be open to this knowledge. You might understand uh, all that's been granted to you, this hope that you have, the riches that you have in, in inheritance that's coming, the immeasurable greatness of this power that's been given to you who believe. According to the working of his great might, you understand the very powerful working of God, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above, all, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under, un, under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, I want you to know all that you have. And there's a power granted to you. This great might that raised Christ from the dead that showed God was pleased with him and the payment that he'd made for sin. And I want you to walk with that power. Men and women, we are not paupers. We're not spiritual beggars. Ephesians opens up with this statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're not a pauper. Oh, God's not promised us health, wealth, and prosperity on this planet. Oh, and one day there will be health, wealth, prosperity. But not this side of heaven. All creation groans. There will be a new creation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. But yet we have this resurrection power granted and available to us even now. And for that we should give God great glory, great praise. He's fifth, he's to be praised for promising us an inheritance in heaven. An inheritance. It says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. inheritance that he's granted to us. It's this, this glorious inheritance that he speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1. He desires for us to know all the spiritual blessings that he's granted to us. We have this promise that's been granted because of the spirit that indwells us. Ephesians 1, yet again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest money, the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Eye has not seen and ear hath not heard all that God has in store for us. We, don't, we have no means to know all that there is that God has for us. This inheritance. There's allusions to it. Even in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says to the elders. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. As well as, well as a partaker in the glory that is going, going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise an oversight and under compulsion. But willingly as God would have you not in shameful gain. But eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You begin to understand more the understanding of God's glory. And that's as we begin to see it on this side of earth. God will give us glimpses like he did with Moses. And as we begin to see it, here's what we say, like Moses said, show me your glory. As he begins to reveal himself to us, all we want is more and more of that glory. Not for ourselves, but for his praise. Majesty of his name. Show me your glory. What did God tell Moses when he asked for that? Did he understand what he was asking for, right? Must cover him and only allow him to see the backside of his glory. Kill him. He will die. Is that not the same thing Jesus said? If you're going to follow me, you must take up your Christ, your cross, and deny yourself and die daily. Men and women, we have to die in order to see God's glory. Die to our desires and our wants, our selfishness, our self-centeredness to our flesh. And then we will never see the glory of God in its fullness until we die physically. We were ushered in to the presence of God. And seeing him face to face, we will be like him, First John says. And so he promises us an inheritance. Well, I told you in Ephesians 1 that the spirit is a seal. It's a guarantee of this. It. It promises and it guarantees that inheritance for us. And this comes from when you believed, heard the word and you believed in it, right? It's the same terminology that Peter says here in our text. If you skip down to verse 22. First Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The Spirit takes the word and takes root in our lives. We sow seeds, we're sowing the word, right, based upon Mark chapter 4. And it takes root, it's an imperishable seed. That the Spirit accompanies. It creates new life in the life of the soil that it takes root in. And it promises us that there's a future fulfillment, a future heir, right? Which means you have to be a son or a daughter. You have to be an heir, to be a part of the family. And so God's promised that we were part of His family. Whereas Ephesians 2 told us that we were by, by nature children of wrath. 
sons of disobedience of our father, the devil, God then brings us to life, puts his spirit, his seed within us, spirit, the word. As a result of that, now we become sons of God, children of God. And God grants us an inheritance because we are now a child of his. We are an heir, a co-heir with Christ, the scripture teaches. What about this inheritance? Number one, it's undefiled. I mean, it's imperishable. It will never perish. Moth or rust won't be able to come in. Thief won't be able to destroy this. Everything we see on this planet is perishable. Is it not? It's putrid. It's gross. We were doing some cleaning here at the church. Cleaning out the refrigerator. We found some milk that had been in there a long time. It began to expand so much that uh, the container was about to explode with fermentation. I thought it'd be a great idea to open up the cap and smell it. I did. Mackenzie joined me. Pastor Tim, great pleasure in experiencing that as well. It's not a pleasant experience, I can tell you. What do we know? It's putrid. It perishes. That is not the inheritance we have in Christ. It never perishes. It can't be stolen. It cannot be destroyed. It never perishes. Number two, it's undefiled. It can't be marred by sin. Be grateful for that. That's why the Bible promises in 1 John, those who are born of God will not practice sin, but will be sons and daughters of obedience. I mean, we will never sin. It just means the natural practice of our life, the natural film strip of who we are. There might be certain frames within the film strip that are sinful. But the overarching view of my life is one of sanctification, one of holiness. It's undefiled. It's unfading. So it talked about here, all flesh is like grass, verse 24, and it's glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. That's, it fades. It's not bright. It's not beautiful. It can go away. It fades. It perishes. And the scripture here teaches that it's unfading. It will never become lackluster. It will always be outstanding and majestic. And it's kept in heaven for you. What does that teach us? Number four, number six, last point. God is to be praised for sending his son to make payment for sin by granting great mercy to the undeserving, by causing us to be born again, by giving us power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, by promising an inheritance in heaven, and by number four, guarding our salvation until all was completed. That inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It's being guarded what it says here in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How's it being guarded? Talk to me. What does the pastor say? How's it being guarded? Who's guarding it? Who's guarding it? Who's guarding it? God. And how is he guarding it? With what? His power. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave. So go back. Remember I told you, I said, I wanted to unpack a little bit more about this God causing us to be born again. If it were in our power for us to cause ourselves to be born again, then it could be lost if I'm the one who, who makes it happen. I can't keep it. Remember I told you, all of our dreams are dying. Everything that's of us is dying. Our body is dying. This world is created to die because of the mar. About the curse of sin that's marred all of creation. It's dying. Even Romans 8 says all creation groans for a new creation. It's been marred by sin. I've been marred. I'm born in sin.
something that's not outside of me. An imperishable seed, as First Peter 2, it's not placed in me. Then everything's going to perish and it's going to die. And so if I can muster up the energy to be saved, I can also choose to lose that salvation. Or I can do something in order not to maintain that salvation. But if God does something to me, God's the one who's enacting the work upon me. It should give me great comfort that he who began a good work in me, Philippians 1, 6, will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's promised us an inheritance. He's adopted us. He's made payment for sin. He granted us mercy even when we were undeserving. He calls us to be born again. He's given us power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He promises an inheritance in heaven. And he's the one guarding our salvation, guarding our inheritance until all is completed. Until the time to be revealed in the last days. How is he doing that? The Bible says. What's the passage say? Who by God's power are being guarded. How? Through faith. So once again, going back to Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to the last points to help us. That's why Peter and Paul make it such a big deal. That it wasn't our faith that was enabled. It wasn't our faith in and of us. God granted us faith that was given from him to us. Why is that important, Pastor? It's not simply just that we won't boast, but that we boast in the right thing. We boast in God because God's the one who granted us this. God's the one who gave us this. And we can boast in his power, not our own, because why? He will guard it through the faith that he granted us. That will never change. How do we know that? Because faith is a gift. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The same faith that will be guarding is being guarded by God's power until its salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. By grace you've been saved through that faith. And this is not your own. It's not your own doing. That faith didn't come from you. The Bible says it is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. We boast in that God's granted us this faith and that faith that he's given us is that imperishable seed of the word of God that will, that will last forever. It will never fail. It will never, never wither. It's an imperishable seed. And we praise him. This is why it's so important. Go, now all this, so what, pastor? So what, so what? When suffering happens, we trust in God. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I know I should think right. No, don't even try to think about, think about what you should do. Think about Christ. Cast your eyes upon him, for he cares for you. Much of our thinking is still thinking about ourselves. Our praying is simply worrying on our knees. Praying, we're talking to someone. We're not talking to ourselves. We're talking to God. We're talking to someone. Our thoughts should be on him, who he is, his power, his might, his strength, his mercy, his sovereignty, his, his abilities, his character, his nature. And it gives us a certainty, a hope. Because he never changes and he never lies. This is his work he's doing. And men and women, even though it's tough to wrap our eyes and our hearts around some of these doctrines, I get it. But these are the very doctrines that Peter starts with because why? He's about to unpack. I get it. I know you're suffering. And you need to know all the attributes of God. Not just his love, not just his mercy. Not just his kindness, not just his holiness, not just his wrath. All attributes of him, his sovereign rule and reign, his long suffering. Look at all the attributes of God. And beholding him, 
We're becoming transformed into his image by one degree of glory to the next. Second Corinthians 3 tells us we become like him. And when we get to the end of all this and we see the work that he's done, and we're like Mephibosheth brought before King David, limp and lame and not able to walk, an enemy of God, fully expecting the wrath to be poured out on him, him to be killed, and God gives us mercy. He removes the misery. And he says, no, 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 you'll be seated at my table from here on out. You're one of my sons. That's the hope that we have. And that next week, that's the joy that we have. When this world's horrible and it's difficult and it really kicks us in the soul, that's the joy that we have because we long for being that day when we're with him and we will see him and we will be like him. But today, before we talk about the joy next week, be encouraged about the hope that is certain, not the hopes that we have that are uncertain, the dreams and aspirations that die. We have a living hope. Are you trusting in that living hope today? For all who you were born again, ponder on these six things this week. Ponder upon your life. Am I, am I praising God the Father? Is your life a doxology? A praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not you, I pray today God has opened your eyes. And all of a sudden we're Weeks before, oh, you could understand it intellectually. But now, all of a sudden, God's speaking to you personally. Says he's put his, his hands on either side of your face to get your attention. And he says, look at me. Oh, don't just listen. Look at me. Behold my glory. Behold me. The Lamb of God that came to take away, not simply the sins of the world, but your sins. And I would say, like Jesus said to Nicodemus and Numbers 21 said to those who looked at the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, I would say, look at Christ and live this living hope that he's given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this living hope. That, Lord, it is certain. And there's inheritance that is ours. That is imperishable. Father, that it's not simply imperishable, but it's undefiled and it's unfading. I pray, God, that this morning you've opened our hearts and eyes to the understanding of the work of regeneration, the grace that's been given by the Spirit according to the Word that's created us, that's made us alive, Ephesians 2 said. It's caused us to be born again. And as we understand these deep weighty doctrines that are hated by many. Lord, it's not attempting to cause division. It's written to give hope and, and certainty, to grant confidence and comfort. And I pray it's done that this morning. That we don't have to work in order to maintain our salvation. We're working in the midst of our salvation as a byproduct, as a result of our salvation. And yes, we'll labor and toil, but then we give you all the credit that it's you who works and wills for your good pleasure. And it's with your might 
with your power that we work because you've made us alive. I pray today we would leave this place praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for resting in the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the six things that are simply spelled out just this morning of all that you've done in order to save us and to keep us, to love us, and to bless us. With all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, we give you praise. And I pray for those in this room who have not done that, that today may be the day of salvation. Today you would not harden your hearts, but you would turn and repent. Place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this week we would, this holy week, as we celebrate resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that the gospel will be quick upon our lips. And that we would look at men and women all around us as either dead or alive. Dead in their trespasses and sins or made alive unto Christ through your work. And that, Lord, that we would be, it would lead us to compassion to share the great glorious news of your great mercy. And that, God, that we would take every one of those divine opportunities to do good to everyone, that everyone we see is a divine opportunity to share this great glorious, glorious news. Even at a time where our where culture is paying attention to Christ at Easter. Or do we not make it about a service and a, one, a service on one weekend a year but Lord, would it make it about the lostness of others and the glory of God, the glory of your great name? And for your, your name's sake, would you draw men and women, boys and girls to yourself through us as we proclaim this great gospel? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.